Triggers are based on one word, should. It should be this or it should not be this. A Taoist cannot live in the world of shoulds. It is or it isn't. It's as simple as that. If it's unresolved, it's not going to leave you until you resolve it. But resolving it has nothing to do with solving it. It has to do with resolution. If you make it about you, then it becomes about you. But it's not about you. Nothing that happens is about you. Things don't happen to you. They happen. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. This interview with Taoist abbot Lao Jir Chong is so rich and profound, I've decided to separate it into two episodes. For best cohesion, I suggest listening to them in order. But regardless, there is abundance to be gleaned separately from each. Lao was orphaned at the age of six and ran pharaoh for two years before meeting the Buddhist monk that would raise him. This benevolent monk became Lao's first teacher, and eventually Lao would travel through more than 50 countries acquiring many more teachers of myriad philosophies. Both parts of this interview drip with wisdom, and in the collecting pot of this episode, you will find a comparative analysis of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, sage fatherly-like advice from a monk, an exploration of triggers as vehicles for inner inquiry, how life's symbols are not what is symbolized, and the journey of forgiveness. Lao's life has been rife with isolated incidences of horror, including being gang-raped as a young boy. Yet through all the trauma, and perhaps because of it, he has found healing, love, and compassion. I could listen to Lao speak for hours and hope to continue fruitful dialogue with him to share with you. His ability to decipher the lessons of the universe and to distill them down into tools for others' growth is extraordinary. He is on one hell of a journey and our lives are now better because of it. Open up to it and hang on. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with Lao Jir Chong. Lao, welcome to Salish Wolf. Thank you very much. How did you come up with that name? Wow, right off the bat, I'm getting interviewed. I like that. I live on an island in the Salish Sea. Mm -hmm. Salish is a First Nations term for the body of water that surrounds this area where I am. And there is an archipelago 
just east of Victoria. Very tiny. It has three main islands and a few smaller islands. Uh, and when I say tiny, these are quite, quite small islands. And that archipelago is where a lone wolf ended up about 10 years ago. Nobody knows how it got there other than presumably it swam. And it was expected to leave there, probably, pretty shortly after getting there, because how could a lone wolf survive in such a small area? Well, the wolf actually stayed. And the wolf stayed for over seven years and really captivated the community of Victoria and beyond. It, it actually, in truth, gained worldwide fame. And it was something that a number of people who I now know and have interviewed and some who I've befriended were very closely connected to the wolf. And mm -hmm. one of my dear friends now, Joan Morris, who I interviewed in a previous episode, actually grew up on one of the islands of that archipelago. She's the last person alive who, had, who lived on those islands, the island known as Kichez. And so sh she and her people feel a very deep kindred spirit with this wolf. And there's other people who also became very close, a documentary filmmaker, a caretaker of the land. And so it was something where when this podcast was coming to life, and I don't want to give away too much of the story because part of what I'm doing in this podcast is I'm working on creating a docu-series based on the life of this wolf known as Takea or Stakea. And when I was coming up with a concept for this podcast, there was a report that a lone wolf was roaming through one of the small neighborhoods in Victoria, and it was presumed that it was this wolf, Stakea but it was unknown at that point in time. And eventually it was confirmed that it was. And a whole chapter two or chapter three is to Kaya's life unfolded from that point forward when he, was, when he was found roaming through Victoria. He had left his island for reasons that we'll never know. And something about it just inspired me. The spirit of the lone wolf this incredible creature who defied all odds by living on a tiny archipelago. It was the tiniest home range of a wolf, known wolf in the world. And then to get to know so many people who had physically and emotionally been impacted by this wolf and actually had created relationships with this wolf, uh, it, it just seemed like such an incredible story. And most of the guests who I interview in some form or another are lone wolf types. They basically have had to drop their attachment to the ego and to seeking external validation and look inward for their contentment and their joy and their purpose, very much like it seems a lone wolf does. So it just kind of sprang organically from there. And uh, this docu-series is actually a, a bit of a weight on me right now because it's about a year into it, but I'm interviewing so many people and there's so many delicacies that need to be navigated with it. Meanwhile, I'm getting the opportunity to interview people like you and our friend Luke who referred me to you. And it's been an incredible journey for me. Would you say then that your archipelago that little one that you lived on before you started this is getting a little bit bigger and now you're roaming neighborhoods. <laughs> Interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I think that's, I might have to sit with that a little bit longer, but yeah, it was something, my world is expanding through this podcast. 
and I'm meeting and meeting people and making connections that I would would not have had the opportunity to do otherwise. So yeah, I guess I'm out there roaming around right now, but still also trying to pay homage to that lone wolf and doing the inner work. The inner work is interesting in my experience because it seems like the farther you try to get away from people, the more impact you seem to have. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. That's a unique way of putting it. But it, it's true of so many Taoist sages, isn't it? I believe that's uh, I believe that's true, sir. Yes. Speaking of Taoism and and that inner work, who are you? Let's go with that. Well, if I could tell you, then I wouldn't be it, would I? But I'll do my <laughs> best to 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 explain. Like the Tao Te Ching is an interesting or seminal work because the Tao Te Ching is only one chapter. The first page is the Tao Te Ching. The other 80 are trying to explain that one page. Mm. And it starts with it can be told it isn't the Tao. And then he goes 80 more chapters trying to explain the Tao. So I don't I don't feel like a, a Taoist pariah for attempting what the what the sage did. But um, the truth is, is uh, I'm no one. And I don't mean to be glib or fortune cookie. Um, I'm not a, a person who entertains flights of fancy. I like Rumi, but I'm no Rumi. The truth is, is there, there, there's really no me. My journey, no different than Stakei or yours or anyone else, is a, a journey that has led through many dales and valleys and hills and mountains. Um, but it's just a journey. And it doesn't, journeys don't, if I find in my, my experience, they don't, they don't define us. They form us. They don't define us, right? Do wolves swim? Apparently. Do all wolves swim? Not necessarily. So what makes Stakea a swimming wolf? An archipelago. But it's still a wolf. So it doesn't define the wolf, but it does form the wolf. It's kind of the same thing. And so I grew up uh, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. Um, parents, my parents died when I was six. And so I was feral for about two years. And then um, after that, I ended up meeting my master. He was a Chan Buddhist monk, but he was born and raised until six as a Taoist. And his parents entered him into a monastery uh, with the Buddhists because he was on a mountain called Song Mountain, which in China is one of the five sacred Taoist mountains. And they did his birth chart and his birth chart said that he should be a monastic. And so very practical, preeminently Chinese Taoist parents. Where's the nearest monastery? The Buddhist one. Good enough. Knocked on the door. Master Abbot. Ah, Master Taoist, what's going on? Got a Buddhist. Says the birth chart, you're the closest. Okay, welcome. And the kid's six years old going like, what's a Buddhist? You are, kid. And then they left and they didn't go back ever. <laughs> and so he was originally born and raised on Hua Mount, which was another one of the five sacred Taoist mountains. And so he lived in the Chan Monastery from mid 1910s until 1951. And then the Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution, they were killing Buddhist monks. So he left China, or left Hunan in the Mount Song Mountain, which is where that, that province is. And him and his master took their Buddhist robes off. And he's like, well, Master, we've made these vows. We have to wear them. He's like, can you honor your vows if you're dead? Take their damn clothes off. So he got, he put on um, shepherd's clothes. And they put on their little beanies. 
and they would go and Buddhists can't work for money. So they went to little villages and they would be like, we'll take care of your goats. We'll take care of your livestock. And you um, just feed us and give us a um, place to stay. That's all we need. And they're like, well, you know, we, we could pay you for that. And they're like, well, you know, and, and you know, obviously they can't say we, we don't take money. That, that'll tee people off. So they said, well, we don't know what the economy is going to be like. The money may be worth nothing. And then so just food and clothes, shelter, it's fine. And so they made their way down. Now, when they would take the livestock up into the mountains, they would do their practices and cultivations because the livestock had bells. So if soldiers or anybody was coming, they would disturb the animal and then they would just lay down and be a couple lazy shepherds. And then, you know, so that there was like an early warning detection system. And they made their way from Hunan all the way over to Sichuan, which is at the uh, border of China and uh, Tibet, about the Himalayas. And his master said, you shall not come with me into the Himalayas. You will take yourself to back east to the land of the giant. And my master was like, what? What does that even mean? And so he made his way across southern China, came across with the boat people, uh, the Vietnamese boat people that were coming across, ended up in San Francisco, the land of the San Francisco giants. <laughs> and he ended up staying there. Uh, and then I met him in 1983, um, just over eight, after uh, eight years old. And I lived with him for 10 years. So he raised me Buddhist, and he also raised me Taoist. Now, there were eight monks there. My master and another one were both Chinese Chan Buddhists. There were two from Tibet who were refugees from the Tibetan occupation. There were two from Thailand who were there from the coup. And then there was one from Cambodia, one from Laos, and they were refugees from the killing fields in the Khmer Rouge. So they ended up being there when I was there. And so I was raised by this very big spectrum of Buddhism from Hayana to uh, Hinayana. And, and we, I learned a great deal, but I was also raised Taoist. So about, I don't know, two, three months before the end of my uh, tenure there, my master said, look, you're going to have to make a decision as you become an adult. You're either going to become an ordained Buddhist monk or you're going to become a Taoist, a wandering Taoist. So you kind of have to make your decision. So I had thought it out and I said, okay, old man, what are we dealing? What are we negotiating? What's on the table? What are we talking about here? He's like, well, if you become a Buddhist monk, you're going to have to be a vegetarian. I'm like, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Because in the temple, we only eat steamed rice and vegetables twice a day anyways. Once in the morning when you wake up and once at noon. You don't eat afternoon. So I was like, oh, this kind of sucks. I guess it's fine. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. He's like, and you're gonna have to chant the sutras every day. I'm like, oh, I can, I can, I can do Pali, I can do Sanskrit, but, but chanting in Mandarin, oh, it's the worst. It's like, I can't get my mouth around it or something. I don't know, it's really, <laughs> I was like, even the Baptist could be like watermelon, water, you know, when they're doing their sims, you can't do that. I was just like, all right. He's like, and then you're going to have to be celibate. I'm like, you know what, old man? It was so good to spend time with you. I really enjoyed this, but it seems like, yeah, that I, I love you, man, but I don't love you that much. So, and that was what it is. And it was. And, and, and the funny thing about it was, is I had actually, um, I had gone about when I was 16, that we'd had a, a, a Taoist priest come stay with us for a bit like uh, about a week or so. And he was eating chicken once at the table, you know? And my master and everybody's, of course, eating their steamed rice and vegetables. And I was looking I'm like, master, he's a, he's, a, 
a priest, but he's eating meat. Like, how's he doing that? He's like, maybe you should ask the guy who's putting the meat in his mouth. And so I was like, Master Taoist, I mean, if you're ordained and, and, and you're, you're, you're following the way, how do you eat meat? He's like, glad you asked, young man. When I was born, I didn't have teeth at all. But then these, like, these flat ones came in. But then completely unbidden, these sharp pointy ones came in. I don't even know where it came from. And so the Tao, you know, had it that I could, I could eat plants, but I could also eat meat. And then he kind of nudged me a little bit and winked and he goes, so if the Tao or the universe gives you tools, maybe you should use them. And I was like, oh, I know what he's talking about. I know. And, and of course my master's like, oh, me, I'm like, oh, me, hell, man. <laughs> that guy's on to something. And so, <laughs> so I, I left and I wandered. I left it at, and I wandered for about 22 years. And then lived in countries, you know, from everywhere on five continents. And um, I studied with Sufis and Sikhs and Jains and Gnostics and Swamis and Voduns and Kabbalists, about four dozen indigenous tribes. And I wasn't looking for dogma or truth. I wasn't a seeker because I don't really, if you're a seeker, you can't find, or else how the hell are you a seeker? Well, I mean, seekers can't find by definition or else they're not seekers, they're finders. And so most people will walk right around the thing they're looking because they're seeking. And, and, but I was trying to understand one thing. The way or the Tao is in everything. Everyone, but people Tao their Tao differently. And yet, regardless of how you Tao your Tao, somehow it all seems to work. So why do people do what they do? What, because I, I, I can understand a tiger, easy. I can understand a fish, easy, so easy. Because there's no confusion. Tiger's tiger, fish, fish. Humans, they seem to be in this morass that is entirely idiosyncratic just to that species. And so I watched people being magnanimous and then tyrannical in the same breath, and I couldn't understand it. And so to understand people, you have to understand their beliefs. And to understand their beliefs, you have to live with them. You have to watch their beliefs in their context. You know, And when you, when you study someone in their context, it'll make sense. If you try to put them in your context, then your moral superiority will, will pretty much cause you to judge them. You can't influence somebody you're judging. You can't have influence with somebody until you already know what influences them. And so this was, the, this was sort of the way. And so I studied with a lot of these people and I studied and I did a lot of my own practices and all. And, but life wasn't about, you know, sitting and staring at a dot on the wall for me. It was about going through things because that's where life is right there's no life in a temple the only Tao you find on a mountain is the Tao you bring with you and so as a wandering Taoist, you follow the Tao in all things you see it you follow it and so things would happen and i would go place to place and so by the end of all of the journeys as i sit here now the answer is is i'm no one not really and that's not a glib thing it's because there's no one context that i can say that's me or that's not me Oh man, so rich. Wow. So many questions that can come from that. Let's go back to the beginning. <clears throat> what happened to your parents? Answer. Both of them. Mm -hmm. 
Do you remember them? Some. I don't remember what my mom looked like. It's actually interesting. Whenever I saw the Charlie Brown thing when I was little, you know how you only see the teacher from the waist down? I only remember my mom from the waist down. She wore brown polyester pants, and I see the bottom of her shirt, but I really don't have any. I, I couldn't pick her out in the lineup if she was in front of me, probably. And what has their legacy left you? Nothing. In fact, that's sort of the blessing. When you go through enough, and people say, oh, I've been through so much. I, I no doubt. I don't negate that. But going through a lot and going through enough are two different measurements. When you go through enough, you start to see that everything that's ever happened to you, it has to happen to you. So the greatest gift that they both gave was that they died. Because I, if I had grown up as their son, I could never have lived the life that I lived. And while my life is full of pain, it's full of atrocities that people really can't fathom. And I don't, I don't think of myself as different or just, it's just, I'm just a human. And I was just dumb enough to go, yes, and, and go through things. But them not living was the greatest gift because I could not become who I was if I had stayed their son. One thing you notice about Taoists, almost to it, people who are not born to the tribe they belong to end up usually following the Tao, becoming Taoists. It's almost, it's almost without exception. So it, you know, to, give you a, to give you a metaphor, if you're a golden retriever, and you, were born, and you were born to a family of ducks, <laughs> your mind says, no way a, a golden retriever can be born to ducks. Well, notwithstanding, that's generally what happens. And so the golden retriever tries to duck, he tries to quack, he tries to waddle, he tries so hard, but he's just not a duck. And when he wants to, he, he just got to put his mouth, it's like, I'm sorry, it's not your tribe, man. And so most people feel like misfits, and they're not, they're just in the wrong environment it's not their habitat so historically when you wanted to follow the Tao, that wasn't something that was good it was very bad after in confucian's times and on and the reason why is a Taoist was not something you should be because confucians were it goes your it goes god your emperor which is tantamount to the same thing your country your family then you you're the last and so the family is preeminent. You're, even in China, the last name is your is first. So Lao would be the last my last name. Zhi Chang is my is my abbot's name because I'm a Taoist abbot, and then Chang being my Taoist name. But it, you you put the family first. So if somebody's like his first name is Chen, no, that's his last name, it's his family name, because you come last in, in in Confucianism, and you are a cog in a wheel. That's it. So. If you're a first son, second son, third son, first daughter, second daughter, third daughter, you have a place. You have a role. That's it. That's all. There's no lateral movement. There's no social mobility. It doesn't exist. You have your role. Well, people who are born, and it's a very collectivist idea. People who are born to follow the Tao are usually very individualist. And that generally is not received well by collectivists. They don't like that. And so if a guy or a girl decided at some point, mom, dad, I, I've got to go, I want to, I want to study the Tao. That wasn't said lightly because it was tantamount to committing suicide because they would be lament and they would wail and, oh my God, this is horrible. And then eventually, if you, if you're like, I'm, I'm adamant, I'm going through with this and they couldn't punish you out of it, then what they would do, what would happen is you'd be stripped of your clothes. You'd basically have your share underclothes. You have to walk through the compound of the house People would throw tomatoes, they'd throw stuff at you. 
and you would be considered he or she without a name. That is an epithet that is far worse than any racial, um, religious, cultural epithet you can imagine. It is horrible. And you would have to walk dejected, completely rejected from your, your clan and tribe, which most people, that would just break them emotionally. You would have to wander your way to the Taoist temple. And then you'd knock on the door. And you'd be looking disheveled and bedraggled. And they'd go, oh, hey, how's it going? Come on in. <laughs> and then you'd be like, I need to, yeah, we know. Us too. <laughs> and then you find, and then, you know, you'd be given some menial task and they'd watch you and they'd see what your temperament was. And then they'd find the teacher that matched your temperament. And then you'd be given sort of a, a true name, a truth name. And it could be like, wandering cloud or whatever and it's it's just a it's just a placeholder and then eventually if you became ordained you'd get your lineage name and then you'd get your Tao name which is goes together so jir means it's so there's a poem it's a hundred characters and so my master was a 20th generation um Taoist abbot and so hers is uh, ming and then mine is jir means 21st generation and the word means perfected and then when my students who become Taoist monks or priests theirs is li which is orderly or um or, or ethical or, or or you know that's sort of that idea and then you get your name so minus chang which is per clarity so perfected clarity would be is my 21st generation name so you get that name and then you'd follow it and that's and that happens quite quite often in the in the mode of most people. So I have students all over the world and almost to wit, none of them were born to the tribe that they belong to. But that's, that's the way. Is your teacher, the monk that raised you, is that a man or a woman? The man who raised me, uh, the, the monk who made, raised me is a man and he died okay. one year after I left. He just left, went back to China, sat down one day and was like, took a deep breath. Hang on. The woman who's my master now is the abbess in charge of Qingshan Mountain Taoist Temple, which is Qingshan Mountain Taoist Temple um, is the first Taoist temple ever. It's from 142 AD. And she is the abbess of that temple, but she's also the secretary general of the China Taoist Association, which is the governing body of all Taoists. So it's just the minister of religion for Taoist affairs, that's Li Guangfu, and then her. So she's the number two Taoist in the, in the structure of Taoism, over 93 million Taoists worldwide. But, um, but I met her much, much later into my wandering. Hmm. You spoke of Confucians, and did you say Confucianists are collectivist? Generally. Generally, you'll find Confucianism encourages collectivism, but Chinese culture is, is is more collectivist by nature. Is there a short answer to what that means, or a short description of what that means? Co collectivism doesn't doesn't uh, value the um, the individual sovereignty and individual traits. It they value the group think. They grab va gra value. A, a socialistic tendency of all for one and one for all and but you're subservient to the greater good you're you're collect you're you're, you're part of a of, of a hive think 
And that's basically the difference between the wiring and most people. Most Some people are very individualistic and some people are very collectivist. And so most of the differentiations you get in human behavior comes from millennia of evolution where some could live on their own and make their own way. And then some had to be part of a collective for mutual advantage or else they didn't, they're not wired to do things by themselves. They just don't do well that way. So Taoism is more individualistic. Can be. So Taoism is never and, one or the other. Taoism is always yeah. one thing, maybe. That's all it is. It's maybe. There are very right. individualistic Taoists, and they usually are wandering Taoists or Southern Taoists, which is a different thing. And then there's usually then there's the cloistered orders, which are very collectivist in thought, and um, and the Northern Taoists, and they're uh, and they can be very collectivist, sure. And so where they overlap is in this area where even with collectivism or individualism, we are all one. We are all connected. Well, yeah, we are. We are interdependent, right? We're interdependent on whether as one goes one, as goes all. But we're not wired as people to 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 say we're all one. That's impossible because a person from Reykjavik has very very different needs functionally than someone from Goa, India. But they both have needs, and their needs fall around six basic ideas of certainty, variety, significance, connection, growth, and contribution. But those are going to look very, very different. So what you may call certainty will be very different to me. We both need it. But for example, last week, you know, we had this major storm here. I didn't have water. I didn't have power. I have two little boys. But I didn't need, I wasn't looking for someone to come and turn my lights on or someone to come. So I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't need any of that. But there were people who had their handheld radios and we need to know what they're going to say and we need to know what they're going to do. And this is just the wiring. It's not one's better or worse. It's just how people are wired. And so we don't, we're nothing alike in, in the expressions of things, but the internal need behind it, yeah, that's identical. Mm -hmm. And raised Taoist and Buddhist, what are the similarities and differences there? Almost to wit, there's very little difference. The difference would fit in the difference between the two would fit in a thimble, but it's the modality. So in Buddhism, you have point A and point B. Point A is the Maya, the illusion. Point B is um, some, you know, Nirvana, Samadhi, whatever. And so the idea is, is well, if this is what's going to be at Samadhi, then if you're at point A, just do that all the way through. Just you know, let go of attachment, let go of the, the, the illusion, understand it's Layla, understand the dukkha, all of that. There's a lot of dharma to that. But typically, now, if you talk about the Buddha, that's different than a Buddhist. They're not the same thing. Right? Buddhists never shown bald, and yet all the Buddhists, ordained Buddhists are bald. <laughs> You're like, what? Why? The guy wasn't bald. There's no evidence that he was celibate. There's no, I mean, most of the writings of Buddha were written, were written down 800 years after he died. So, and again, I, I'm not besmirching and, or anything like that. It's just, these are just, it's what we know. But the idea is, is that, you know, there's one Dharma and, and it's about the cessation of suffering. Buddha doesn't talk about salvation. Buddha doesn't talk about any of those things. I teach suffering, cessation of suffering. Taoism and has kind of these concepts, but the difference is, is here's point A, here's point B. You know that gritty, grimy, oh my God, this is life stuff? Yeah, that's kind of the point. Might as well get into it. Might as well get on with it. 
So all that space between point A and point B. Pretty much. And so, whereas, you know, if you go to a, you know, a Buddhist Sangha, people are chanting and they're doing the thing and it gives them a great sense and they're wired for that and that's good for that. But a Taoist, while they could sit there and that wouldn't, because why would you be around a bunch of people doing what you're doing? I mean, again, this is a very collectivist idea, but the, it, most Taoists would be like, hey, there's a person out there I could probably actually just love and take care of. There's a person out there that I can help. Like I used to do, go into the countryside. I, am a, I was a physician of Chinese medicine for many years. And so I would go help babies be born. I would go do water reclamation projects. And while a lot of people would be like, oh, well, Buddhists do that, you know, for good karma, good medicine. I didn't do it for that. I did it because people were dying of cholera because they were pooping in the water they drank. <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm not... It's not about merit for afterlife. It's not about invisible people around. It's literally just doing what's in front of you and seeing the way in all things. And the way is not some metaphysical out there. The way is, is it means the way of all things, the way process everything works on. But if you, you say all, then you have to mean all, right? So you, it, it could be like at one point, <laughs> I had to go to a strip club. I, I, I'm not a... I'm not a frequent fan of, of strip clubs, but in this particular case, the, the, the issue had me to go in there. I'm not gonna judge those people. I don't care. They're just following their down. Their life led them there for some reason. I accept that that's part of a life path. May not be mine, but I don't care. But you would get some who are dogmatically Buddhist to be like, oh, this is gonna be direct karma and we can't go in there because of vibrations. It's like, you can't, you can't be the arbiter of that shit. And so if the Tao that can be told is not the Tao, then you know you're not the arbiter of these things. And if you have problems in a strip club, that's your problem, not the strip club's problem. That's a good segue to something we talked about before we hit record, which is triggers. And your answer to, to my question about does anything trigger you is no. There are no triggers anymore. Can you talk about that? Triggers are based on one word, should. The word should is the predicate for every trigger. It should be this or it should not be this. A Taoist cannot live in the world of shoulds. You can't should all over yourself. It is or it isn't. It's as simple as that. Well, when I have this happen, it makes me feel this way. No, 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 no. You were already feeling that way, whether your attention was on that or not. It's not a trigger. It's a reminder of something. But the question is, is why is it still there? Well, because this bad thing happened. Bad things are happening all the time. You should be triggered every five seconds. If it's unresolved, it's not going to leave you until you resolve it. But resolving it has nothing to do with solving it. <laughs> It has to do with resolution. If you know about cameras, resolution is just how clear something is. Do you, are you clear about it? Things don't happen to you. They happen. If you make it about you, and this is the ego you're talking about here, then if you make it about you, then it becomes about you. But it's not about you. Nothing that happens is about you. Nothing's personal. You might want it to be personal. You might secretly wish it was personal, but the fact is it's not personal. So I used to, 
used to teach a lot and I used to have, I, I still do, I have a lot of students on uh, five continents, but I had my Wednesday night meditations. And so one girl said to me, yeah, well, maybe some things are about you. I'm like, sounds pretty vehement. Do tell, <laughs> do elucidate this stupid monk. And she goes, well, what about if you've been raped? That seems pretty personal. I'm like, uh, okay, let's say you're a rock. Somebody picks you up and bashes someone over the head and kills them. Is that rock involved? Does rock have culpability? You blame the rock? She's like, you're equating a rock to a person who's been raped? I'm like, no, you are. You're not listening to what I said. Put your argument down and talk to me or just keep going on the argument in your head. She, and she's like, she, I said, you don't blame the rock, but the person who's been, you know, part of that rape, they'll been blaming themselves and they're going to go through all of these things because we've never developed a coping mechanism to actually deal with what happened. And she's like, well, maybe if you'd had it happen, I'm like, sorry, sweetheart, it has happened to me. I've been gang raped by five people. And she just stopped for a second. She was just, just looked at me. I'm like, Look, man, I'm not here to take your path away from me. Go through what you need to go through. If you're angry, fine. I'm not taking or negating it. But the truth of the matter is, it happens in life. And if you think it shouldn't happen, but you think this is what should happen, you're going to stay triggered your whole damn life. I'm not the first person raped. I won't be the last person raped. I'm not condoning it. I'm not liking it, but you have to accept it is part of this experience being a human. If you say it shouldn't be, well, la-di-da. I'm so happy that you can live in this parallel universe, but you don't. You live here. You live now. The highest cultivation a Taoist can do is called accept and allow. But those words are triggers for people because people think it mean, means you have to become okay with it and like it. And it's like, no, nobody said anything about that. That's not what that word means. To accept and allow is to accept that this is part of the deal. It's part of life. Doesn't mean you're complicit. Doesn't mean you go out and try to make it happen. It just means it happens. And it happens for every generation, every culture, every time period, it doesn't matter. And what that tells you then is that it's not a personal thing. If you're the only one it happened to, maybe that's personal, but you're not. It happens far more. What we never really do is get to the understanding of why it happens. We just vilify whoever does and say, you're an evil person and you'd be punished and you want your pound of flesh. And while they're the marauding, terrible person, you're in your moral righteousness wanting to do all this harm to the person. I mean, are you really, you're kind of making a case for, well, but, but I'm the victim. And how do you know they weren't? There's no cause without effect. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Did I, was I like this about when it first happened? No, of course not. But like I said, I have gone through things. I've had things happen in all of these years. This isn't even the worst of them. This isn't even the hardest one. 
But I said, I want to understand people. And I said, I wanted to understand how people dial their down. And so in answer to my request, quite naively, life decided to oblige me. But if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have gotten what I asked for because everything you ask for is on the other side of everything you have to go to to get it. And most people don't want it. No, just give me the thing, but I don't want to pay for it. Look at the financial system in most of developed countries and figure out how many people want a lot of things without having to pay for it. But everything costs and the bill comes due. You were victimized by these five people. Nope. But were you a victim? Nope. I was not victimized by them. If you look at the model of, of etymology, perpetrator, victim, then I guess you could say because I was not willing com or complicit with it. However, yes. however, victimization in that term is not the same as victimization in terms of identity. A Taoist does everything to lose their identity simply because if you take a hard identity, you can't change. But life is going to always require you to do that change. There's three house rules, paradox, humor, change. It's a, it's a house rule. It's immutable. And so if I am this, I can't grow because now I'm in concrete. You must not ever allow yourself to become concrete. Taoism has something called an uncarved block. If I take a block of wood and I carve a lion, well, then it'll always be a lion. It can never not be a lion. But what if a lion is not what it needs to be? But if you have the, if it's uncarved, then it can become anything. Life's going to put you in positions where some days you're the hero, some days you're the villain, some days you're the victim. You're none of those things. Those are just contextual things. Again, there's only one law in Taoism, maybe. That had to happen because it happened. I can put any reason I want. I can put any spin. I can make it sound positive. I can do that. Or I can be bitter and upset. I can do whatever I want. But in the end, it was five adolescent boys and a young boy, and that was it. End of discussion. There's nothing more to it than that. It could have just easily been somebody else. It could have not been, but it's there. And if you keep the story about it, the story is generally because you don't have the resolution. I'm not, and, and, and people get mad at me and people talk about me. You can't say this and I feel and you're negating my feelings. I'm not negating anything. If you want to stay bitter and upset for 20 years, I will sit happily next to you while you're bitter and upset. I won't take that from you. It's yours. You've earned it. But if you also want to let it go, you can let it go too. That's perfectly okay. It's up to you. You said when it first happened, you didn't feel this level of resolution. No. What did you need to go through to get to this level of resolution? A lot worse, actually. Uh, but the thing was, is I first, when it happened, my master, <laughs> my master, uh, he sees me and he goes, oh, Dalon, come here. <laughs> so I come over and I sit down. What happened? And I, you know, I give him this sort of euphemistic, minimized story because I don't know what to make of all this. I'm, I'm only 11 years old at the time. And he's like, <laughs> he goes, oh, okay. Um, I'm old man. And, and when he wanted to get like really Charlie Chan and like he could put this character on, you know, 
He's like, I old man, don't hear so good. You help a shifu. What? Tell me story again. So I told the story again, but he'd stop me and go, um, what that tastes like? Or, oh, what that feels like? <laughs> or, hmm. Okay, so where were you? Okay, okay, keep going. And so the first day, I told that story seven hours over. Okay, okay, I forget so much. Sorry. I, oh man, start again. And I, so seven hours the first day. Then the next day, 10 hours. Then the third day, six hours. By the end of the third day, I was like, Shifu, I will sign up to have it happen again if you just never make me tell this damn story again. He goes, That's good. Now you're free. Not to find your life by it. Hmm. You see? It's a it's a real thing. Maybe that's not maybe that's not the answer for everybody. He didn't do that. He wouldn't do that with everybody. He, that wasn't about doing what's necessary in that moment for the person. And that will be a, there's no pan fix for everyone. But that helped me to never define myself by that. I could I yeah. accepted at that moment that it happened. And having talked about it so openly and more openly than I thought I would want to be about it, I then was like, oh, now, but as in all the years I wandered, you know, a lot of countries, and we call them countries, they don't know their countries. If you go to Afghanistan, I, I met an Afghani, and I said, I said, what's it like growing up in Afghanistan? You know what he I said to me? I don't know. I've never been there. Where is Afghanistan? <laughs> like, uh, the, the, the country you live in is, you don't know? He goes, I don't live in a country. There's like 2,000 independent sovereign tribes here. What are you talking about? I'm like, you're an Afghani. He goes, no, that's just the name of the money in Kabul. That we don't, what are you talking? No clue. We take an idea that we, like everybody goes along. It, that, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. And so I go into different countries and I would go to do different things. And when I put, you know, funny enough, there'd be things like, I don't know, war. <laughs> there would be things like, uh, you know, civil unrest. And there'd be things like marauding tribes and genocides. And there's a lot of things. And so I've been shot, stabbed, beaten, kidnapped, and sold from one country to another. Put in a pit, wow. pissed on for three days. Um, so when you, when, when you look at life, you see things that happen to you. And people go, oh, you, how do you get through all that? Just one day at a time, man. <laughs> what else are you going to do? But the truth is, is if you believe what you say you believe, then there's a point where you have to, you have to go, I really believe this because this might be the time I have to use it. And it's not easy. And during these experiences, which sound horrible, are you clairvoyant during them? Are you aware, were you aware that this is part of the Tao's, part of the universe's plan for me? No, not in the beginning. So many people don't understand biology very well. Like a lot of times when you get people who study different, you know, esoteric things, yoga or, or Buddhism or, you know, Kabbalah or something, they're very, they're very superstitious. And the reason why they're superstitious is they don't have the slightest clue how math, physics, biology, chemistry, sociology, or psychology, they don't know how these things work. So in the absence of knowing how they work, they just have some metaphysical invisible person. 
Now, don't get me wrong, those things are actually quite metaphysical, but most people just know them as, oh, I hate that subject in school, so I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, it, it's how the world works. And so it's very doubt in, in, in a, you know, math is a language, it's all it is. And if you understand that language, if you have somebody who can actually teach it as a language, then you realize that math is the only way because it uses symbols. And the universe is not a literal thing, it's a symbol. Everything in the universe is a symbol. But we mistake the thing being symbolized for the symbol itself. But if you can stop thinking of it as the symbols as important and you think of the things being symbolized as important, well, now you're onto something different. And so once you understand that, then you can understand physics. You can understand physics without math. Then you can understand chemistry. When you understand chemistry, you, you can understand physics. And then from chemistry, you go to biology. You know how the human body works. And then you can understand sociology and psychology. And these are important steps. And so during those times, like anyone, you go back into the reptilian limbic brain. There's no conscious executive thought there. You're reacting and you're instinctual. The only way I could continually progress through it is I had to keep going through things. See, the, if you want to be, but people were like, oh, I'm just, I'd be so afraid. Of course you're afraid because you go through your life trying never to be afraid. How can you get competent in something you never do? People say, well, how do I get good at, you know, like doing pull-ups, do pull-ups. There's nothing else you can do. If you want to get good at pull-ups, do pull-ups. You want to go to swimming, you got to swim. If you want competent, if you want to get past fear, if you want the vaccine for fear, it's competence. That's all there is. But you have to go through real things. Most people go through relatively nothing. And I don't mean to, and again, this sounds condescending. It's not condescending. It's Think about most people's day, what they really go through. They don't really have a bad day. And their idea of a bad day is, is kind of like go to Botswana or go, go to Somalia and tell those people you had a bad day. I dare you. But for your relative world, that would be what you consider bad. But if you look at a, a sort of objective spectrum, most people's bad day are just average because their good days because, you know, so if you had a bad day and a good day, and then there's neutral in the middle, neutral is your bad day. A good day is your average. Therefore, you have to get this outstanding crazy to get a good day. And they wonder why they don't have good days because your, your calibration's off. When you've had a really bad day <laughs> and then somebody's over there going, oh my God, my macchiato was just, I think that you soy milk and not milk. You're like, are, are you... Are, are you real? Because <laughs> like, that's the thing. And, and it happened. I was in New York. I had to go to um, a particular training in Midtown Manhattan. There was this girl. She was, they made us smoothies with chocolate almond milk smoothies. Who wouldn't love that? That sounds so delish. And she was so upset. She was like, and she was almost in tears. I'm like, uh, what's going on, Pudding? I'm like, what's happening? She's like, I'm not organic fair trade almonds. My God. I'm like, are, are you, are you having a breakdown or almond milk? She's like, many are not conscious. I'm like, okay, epithets aside, I see that you're upset, sweetheart. But the fact of the matter is, if this upsets your day, 
stay in a bubble. Stay, don't come outside of Nerf because this is not a bad day. You can say it's unfortunate. You can say, hey, that's not cool. But if you have a breakdown over that, there's something way other happening over here. You, we, we need to address a bunch of other steps. Well, that's what you just said, too, by saying the symbol is not what is symbolized. Yeah. So yeah. that is a symbol. Yeah. Yes. And only, I'm going to hazard a guess, that only through deep personal reflection are we going to find what is being symbolized, i.e. our trauma, our triggers, our wounds. But the thing is, is most people, they're trying to get past them, mm -hmm. which is why they never go anywhere, because it's a circle. Everything in the, the world is a circle. Sorry, flat earthers. I know I'm an asshole. I get it. All right. The universe is a circle. The galaxy is a circle. Your head's a circle. Everything's a circle. So if you try to get past it, it's just coming back around. The only way out is through. But people see, keep seeing, you know, the biggest problem people have is that they think there shouldn't be problems. <laughs> but the problem that you think is the problem is never the problem. The problem is you think there should be problems. Mm -hmm. But the things that happen in life aren't problems. They're just things that happen in life. Yeah. If you're trying to curate an identity, I want people to think this and I want to feel like this and I want to be this. Well, then all these things are very problematic to you maintaining that illusion. But if you realize now you're just a human and if you're just a human, shit happens. That's, that's the way it's going to be. And then there's nothing to defend because only an ego needs to be defended. If people say to me, oh my God, you were raped? Yeah, so what? What, like I'm the only person in the room? Come on, I'm not that. It makes me more closer to people than anything. When things like this happen, people say, well, how do you live with it? Oh, it's easy. Don't get me wrong, it's still painful. I don't, don't, I don't want to minimize that it's still quite painful. But it's easy to live with. Because you know how many people have that too? Do you know what that superpower that allows me to have allows me to love people better because I can understand them. And they yeah. say, Lau, I've had this happen. Me too, sweetheart. Come here. Come here. I get you. And I can be there with them. But if you've never had anything happen to you, the irony is you'll make shit up so you can commensurate with people over misery. When nothing's ever happened to you. I have so many people tell me like, man, I'm from the streets. I'm like, you grew up in an upper middle class house and went to a private school. What street? <laughs> Rodeo? Lau, <laughs> does forgiveness play any role in this for you? Yeah, but forgiveness is a, is a process and everybody wants to be done with the process now. Get it done now. And it's like, no. Forgiveness really comes down to clarity and acceptance. And acceptance, again, it's not condoning it. You're not saying it's okay that it happened. What you're saying is it happened. Okay, now what? And 99% and of the forgiveness is you because you think you shouldn't have had it happen to you. You're stupid. This, this, if I was worth more of this, and, and all these stories that aren't true. None of those stories are true. None of them are true. You came here to have whatever experience that you're going to have based on a million different effects. What's in that person's genes? What's in that person's psychology? Where's that person's insulin levels? Where's that person's neurochemical? You don't know, but it's not about you. The forgiveness is, is when, you when you don't make it about you and you go, what, I, what they do is a mark on them and what I do and respond to is a mark on myself. 
but people generally will tend to be very mm, hurtful to themselves. They do horrible things for years over it. And so the forgiveness is generally what you do to yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with Lao Chang. To learn more about Lao, listen to Salish Wolf episode 27. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats during which I take men on purpose-driven adventures along British Columbia's wild coast. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcy's. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contributions to the show. For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, including other episodes on Taoism, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio, at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming podcast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up a residence on a tiny island off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.